wasn't it transmitted them? Of course, we didn't finish it. Starring Dennis Carey and Christopher Neem, written by Douglas Adams. I thought it was a very good script. And there was an invisible spaceship. Douglas said anyone can design a visible spaceship, but to design an invisible spaceship, that needs imagination. I think he said that, or did he say? I think he said genius, yes, he said genius. Shada. Shada. You're listening to Trap One. I'm Mark McManus. This week, it's my pleasure to welcome Jason McLaughlin back to the podcast uh, to discuss the new version of Sharda. Hey, how's it going? Yeah, not too bad. Not too bad. Very good. So, since the last time we spoke, we've had a new episode of Doctor Who um, in the form of Twice Upon a Time, the end of the Capaldi and the Moffat eras. Uh, how was that for you? Uh, I enjoyed it. I thought it was a wonderful little like um, epilogue and full stop onto the Twelfth Doctor's era. Um, I thought they did a very good job of bringing David Bradley into it as uh, the first Doctor um, and comparing, obviously, the, the the two characters and how much, uh, as much as the Doctor is always the Doctor, there has been, you know, quite a development from when William Hartnell played him into, like, him becoming a more heroic character over the time. And I thought they did a good, like, analogy that of, obviously, the first Doctor looking on as quite, like, some surprise that he was going to become such a um, adventurer and such a, a defender of, um, you know, good and battling evil so much. So I like that little uh, aspect uh, that they brought to it. Yeah, I guess a lot of the first Doctor stories are about just kind of getting away, aren't they, and, and getting themselves out of a situation rather than, uh, you know, necessarily saving a planet or, or anything like that. Um, you, you don't really kind of like get that development with the show until I think it's Dalek Invasion of Earth, which is kind of like the, one of the pivotal moments that a lot of people say. Yeah, we must pit ourselves against them. Exactly, yeah, yeah. Santa brought you a, a new Sharda DVD? He did indeed. Well, a new Blu-ray, a shiny steel yeah. book, a um, limited edition, uh, three discs, compared to the standard two-disc release. Yeah, I got the steel book as well. It, it, it's just such a beautiful thing, isn't it? It's... Um... The uh, the cover designs um, Adrian Salmon that does the yeah. uh, the illustrations in Doctor Who magazine for the Time Team, um, and uh, did the the colorization I think on the animated parts of, of this shadow. I believe so. Yeah, and I think didn't he also uh, do some of the character designs as well? Yeah, there's um, actually, I think there's an article that he wrote. Um, I came across. Uh, if I can find it, I'll put links in the show notes. But yeah, about how he came up with the, the designs and stuff for this. Um, the cover, I just think, is stunning with the, the fourth Doctor and K-9 kind of tearing down a corridor with um, the silhouette of um, Skagger in the background. Yeah, and, and the spear, and then obviously yeah. you've got Romana and the prisoners of Sharda on, on the other side. Yeah. But just like you say, it's just a lovely um, piece of like artwork to have like, on the packaging. Um you know, you don't normally get that. I mean, I actually thought the um, the actual cover to the standard 
Blu-ray and DVD was a nice like piece of artwork as well. But yeah, I like that this is like kind of like uniquely different. Yeah, like when when it got released on on the internet, um, ever since then I've had this shot as the lock screen on my phone. The, uh, oh right, the Tom Baker and and K nine thing. Um, I just think it looks so cool. Yeah, absolutely superb. So yeah, I didn't I didn't realize that the standard Blu-ray is two discs. So what do you know what there is extra on this one that um, the standard one doesn't? Yeah, um, I mean obviously Shard has already previously been. Uh, released uh, several times. Yeah. <laughs> it's kind of like those um, things that comes around every couple of years. Um, the standard release just has the two discs, which is obviously the, this um, brand new, um, finally animated and fully completed version of Sharda with the second disc is full of these previous extras. And then also some of the behind-the-scenes stuff of this uh, new version. And what you get with the Steelbook Blu-ray is the third disc has the um, original 1992 video version that they had with Tom Baker doing narration to camera for right. the missing sections. And the and the, the um, Paul McGann version is that? Yeah, um, because well. I think previously that was on as um, a link on the previous DVD release. Right. Um, and obviously because that was flash animation, but what they've actually done with this release now is that they've actually put that on in its entirety, so you can actually watch it. And I did actually, um, when I got this at Christmas, obviously I watched the the actual main um, feature, hmm. and then obviously checking out the other discs, um, I dipped into that, and as much as I love that Paul McGann version of Sharda, because um, I've got the uh, CD version from Big Finish uh, as well. It's a struggle to watch on a big TV screen because it was done, obviously, in 2003. It was done with flash animation. It's yeah. very, very basic, and it is essentially just a lot of drawings who, that just move very, very slightly. So it's kind of like watching a lot of static drawings on your television screen whilst listening to a radio version of Sharda. So it doesn't quite work on the big screens that it would have done probably if you'd watched it on your PC when uh, BBC, um, the Doctor Who site, debuted it you know, back in the yeah. 40th anniversary year, would it be? Yeah, yeah 2003. Yeah, because it, it struck me, because uh, I just watched a bit of it the, the, the same as you, even compared to Scream of the Shalker. Which was done in the it, same year, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, it was around the same time. Scream of the Shalker is much more animated in the sense there's more movement, isn't there, for the characters and everything. Yeah. I, I kind of expected it because I've never tried to watch it before. Like, like you have only heard the big finish, the CD of it. I had expected it to be definitely be more movement and more actual animation in it. Um, yeah. I found that quite surprising. These kind of like animations, like with the reconstructions and the filling in with missing episodes from like the 60s releases and obviously they're done sometimes they started off a little bit basic but they've got better as, as, as they've gone along I think when you kind of like are beginning to watch that you're expecting kind of animation of more recent quality and not realizing that it was done on quite such a limited budget back in like 2003 to the point where like you say it is a virtually a lot of static images yeah. that just like swap occasionally. I suppose, I mean, I, I definitely had kind of dial up then as well. Um, 
probably a lot of people did because I, I never got to see Scream of the Schalke the first time round um, for the same reason, just because it was it was just never loaded. You know, it was <laughs> it was re- beyond the I bandwidth that I had at the time. I do remember watching the Sharda version um, on on PC, and like you say, dial up, and it would have taken a lot of time, and it, occasionally it did freeze. Um, but I think when um, Schalke came round. Uh, luckily, I think the BBC put it on the red button, and uh, I was able to watch it through there instead, so um, I didn't have those problems. I think that predated when I had Sky or anything. Actually, actually got Sky in for um, when the series came back because Doctor Who Confidential was going to be on BBC Three. Oh, <laughs> uh, right. So that was the main driver for me, uh, kind of getting Sky in at the time, was, uh, so I'd be able to watch that. Similar to me, I I upgraded to uh, HD uh, when uh, I heard that they were filming it in HD, and I got um, Sky HD just in time for yeah. Planet of the Dead, uh, the first David Tennant special that they did. That's right. Yeah, it was the the year of specials, wasn't it? When they when they switched to HD. It was, yeah. God, it's crazy, isn't it? It just seems like um, no time at all. It was two thousand and nine, wasn't it? It was, yeah. That's nearly like, you know, 10 years ago. That is really scary, actually, when you think about it. Definitely. So, what what was the first version of Shada that you came across? Was it the 1992 VHS? Yeah, it would have been. Um, um, Obviously, I collected the VHSs when they came out, um, and that is one of the few videotapes that I've still got. And it remember it came as a double kind of like release yeah with the script book didn't it yeah and so i've still got that version um because i kind of like kept when i was clearing out my old vhs dot two videos and quite a lot of them i sold on ebay for and you know they went for nice amounts of money because certain stories weren't yet released on dvd yeah um, but I decided to keep certain ones that were unique or I knew would probably never get released in that format again. So I've kind of like kept like stuff like the Years tapes or stuff like the extended version Silver Nemesis because it has like stuff on it like the documentaries, which we know probably aren't going to get cleared for a DVD release, which obviously never that hasn't happened. Yeah. And uh, I decided to keep Sharda because, again, I was thinking Sharda was probably never gonna get released you know again um but obviously it did get a dvd release a couple of years ago and i remember at the time there was quite a big uproar from fans that were just getting the standard vhs version with tom baker talking to camera for the missing bits then they're not animating it and um a lot of people like saying they should be animating it and completing it and then lo and behold when it comes out this year and they decided to announced that they're doing a new version of Shada with animated sections for the missing filmed um, bits. Fans, again, were saying, well, yeah, but we don't want that. (laughs) We want animated 60s episodes that don't exist anymore. It's like, you can't please anybody, can you, at any time? No, it doesn't matter what's announced. There's just like a kind of a a wave of negativity, isn't there, across the internet? I know, and I know there's been quite a bit of negativity about this release because of certain choices that the production teams made um, with its presentation, because um, I know a lot of fans have said, well, why is it in, episode, in episodes? Why is it feature length? Um, 
why is there a pre-title sequence? I've even seen some fans moan about the fact that the, the lovely little Tom Baker scene at the end. Yeah, that's um, that's because uh, it's uh, it's magical that scene. I think it's absolutely brilliant. Um, it is. I mean, I saw that, and when I watched that, I, I got little goosebumps because you know Tom Baker is is my doctor, um, and to just to see him again, yes, obviously he's you know he's aged. He's he's his age as he is now, but to just to see him again in that set in that costume, in character, you know, being part of the story again. I just thought it was a wonderful, lovely touch to end the story. Absolutely, yeah. in that he says. Yeah, the, it's so fitting, isn't it, with the line. Um, it was that the Doctor, he seems such a nice old man. It, it yeah. absolutely perfectly fits. Um, and yeah, it, like you say, everything... I had the same kind of feeling as I did in Day of the Doctor... When he turns up at the end, because um, oh, yeah. I had no idea that he was going to be in it, um, and although I, and he's not my doctor in the sense of the first one I saw, he is my favourite. Um, yeah. And you get a real kind of hairs on the back of your neck standing up thing when um, when when you just kind of get something new from him, I think, because the um, mm-hmm. you've seen his, his story so many times and you know kind of so well worn that just a little bit of new material from him is really exciting, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, I was such a big. Um really thrilled when he finally decided to start doing big finish audios yeah and uh, just to like that first one that he did and just to like hear his voice again in the context of a new story um was just like it, you know it's like you can close your eyes and you, it feels like you're back in 1977 again yeah in Saturday tea times it was amazing I don't think his voice has aged that badly either um, no no um, in in the way some actors have, um, yeah. I think yeah. there's. I mean, I was kind of listening out for it when I was, when I was watching this. The difference between the original 1979 footage and um, the you know the stuff that they've recorded for the animation, there's, it's not jarring at all. It's um, I think it's very consistent. Yeah, and anyway. I think um, obviously when you, I mean, I don't collect all the big finish stuff. I, I'm mainly key to. Um, the fourth Doctor and the eighth Doctor ranges, and I mm. did my toe in with the other Doctors. Um, but you can certainly tell there's a difference between obviously Peter Davison and Colin Baker as they were when they were appearing in the show. Yeah, and voices are are now their voices have aged. Peter um, Davison's a lot deeper, well, isn't he? I think that's um, it. Kind of gives him more authority. Yeah, and kind of gravitas in a way. I I really like his his big finish stories, um, but yeah, de- definitely distinctly different. I think if if you did a similar thing where you interspersed that with original footage, there would be a more marked difference. Yeah, yeah. Whereas I think certainly with like um like say Tom Baker and Sylvester McCoy, their voices really haven't changed at all like yeah. over the years because they have got probably quite such distinctive voices. And obviously, Paul McGann, you can kind of like just argue, well, he just, you know, we never really got to the like see uh, until the name of the Doctor. Uh, sorry, not the the, uh, the Night of the Doctor, whichever one it was. Yeah, the Night of the Doctor is his yeah, uh, regeneration, yeah. Yeah, so we didn't really like see him age, and so his voice doesn't really matter when it's when you're listening to the uh, the Eight Doctor audios. Yeah. 
I, um, the the first time I came across Sharda was um, well, it was the Five Doctors, um, in the sense that that was the first, you know, the first character camp because the the footage from Sharda was using the Five Doctors, because that was only the second story I ever saw that was pre McCoy because I started watching with the Seventh Doctor. Oh right, yeah. And then when I discovered the VHSs, I got Death to the Daleks, and then the Five Doctors. Mm. Um, so it was at the time as well. Didn't know anything. Didn't realize it wasn't just part of the Five Doctors. Um, so it was the first even Tom Baker that I saw was was this clip from Sharder and the Five Doctors. Um, yeah. Well, I mean, obviously, I watched um, the Five Doctors when it went out on transmission back in '83. I would have been 11 years old. Yeah. <laughs> Crazily, and obviously at that point, you kind of like you, there was no internet, there was no behind the scenes information. Even Doctor Who magazine, to that extent, didn't really cover much news. Mm. They said that there was a special being filmed, and I don't even recall it being reported that Tom Baker wasn't going to appear. So obviously, when he turns up and you see the punting scene, and then they get picked up by the time scoop, you're kind of like just going, "Wow, they've just you know." the fourth Doctor's in danger. And it wasn't until years later that you actually like kind of like discover when you get into like learning about the behind-the-scenes stuff that that's actually... Don Baker didn't film anything for the five Doctors. They actually, to get around him not wanting to appear, they used Shadow footage. It's and I have... I, I said um, to a couple of like um, fellow Doctor Who fans that, you know, when they released the... Five Doctors Special Edition, and they spruced it up with the effects and stuff. And obviously, knowing Shard and more after that point, mm. I've always said that perhaps the um, the bicycle chase through Cambridge would have been a much more better fit for um, the Five Doctors than the punting scene. Yeah, because you could have had the uh, the time scoop chasing the Doctor through the streets of Cambridge. And then it fits into that little scene at the end where of the five doctors that they use, where Romana comes and rescues him with the TARDIS. Yeah, because he's the um, way he's lying in that kind of alleyway where he could have come off the bike. Yeah, yeah, I'd never thought of that. That would, I suppose, it, it gets Romana in earlier as well. I suppose that's the uh, potentially the the benefit of it. Uh, you know, from the, from the nostalgia point of view. Yeah, and I presume they probably. John Nathan Turner probably at the time probably used it because it was more of a dialogue scene and it was like to sh it was a longer sequence to put to actually try and get away from the fact that Tom Baker wasn't you know going to film any scenes for the Five Doctors so to have that lengthy dialogue scene on the, on on the river kind of like papers over the crack of him not wanting to uh, appear. Yeah. What I hadn't realised till I read the um, the production notes, uh, the little booklet that comes with the with the steelbook Blu-ray, um, was that John Nathan Turner had tried to kind of remount this at various stages. Um, so it talks about how he maybe thought of it as a kind of a Christmas special, you know, if they could if they could film a bit more of it, and then maybe make it into a four-parter or two fifty-minute episodes. Um, and it talks about. He, uh, in 1985, he was discussing the idea of completing the production with newly shot material from the new lead actor, Colin Baker. It's hard yeah. to see how that would have worked, I think. It I, 
I, I mean, um, I'd read previously about that, obviously when Gray and Williams left and they kind of like resigned themselves to the fact that Sharder wasn't going to get completed, that John Nathan Turner did like pick up the reins and try and get it completed. And it wasn't, I think, until June... 1980 that they finally gave up the hope of it ever getting completed at all yeah the the the, the potential remount in 1985 was uh, you know took me by surprise and i've actually read a bit more into it and it would have been probably very similar to um what they eventually did in 1992 with um essentially instead of tom baker director camera narrating all the unfilmed bits of the story it would have been Colin Baker instead whether that ever would have ended up on TV um, I don't know ah, um, right. I, I kind of read it as it was going to be an episode with you know kind of almost two doctors but um, yeah kind of footage from Sharda with, with you know kind of Colin Baker doing the other bits and pieces Oh right, okay. Well, but I mean, it doesn't, been... it doesn't go into any more detail than that. So um... I did see actually on the Sharder, um, there's a, obviously on the Gallifrey Base Forum, there's a like a DVD section, and I was looking in the Sharder thread, and somebody had come up with a very good idea. It was like that. Well, perhaps they should have used the Sharder footage as part of Trial of a Time Lord. Um, and you think actually that's not a bad idea. Yeah. <laughs> That could have worked very well, couldn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Well, over time, Lord um, deliberately did the whole like kind of past story, a present story, and a future story, didn't it? Over the course of its fourteen episodes. Yeah. Yeah, because that would potentially well, it would have definitely been better than any of the uh, <laughs> any of the individual uh, stories in Trial of a Time Lord. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, it's not the best, is it? Yeah. Trial of the Time Lord. It has its moments. Yeah, I think. I mean, yeah. I mean, I do. Um, I do still like um, you know, kind of Colin Baker stories and things like that. But I, I feel like if if they had used any of Sharda in um, in in the eighties like that, it would have been so jarring because the style is so different, and yeah. the dialogue and even the relationship between the Doctor and the Companion. It's 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 only a few years later, but they're they're miles apart, aren't they? Yeah, and going back to the thing about obviously John Nathan Turner tried to save the show and try and get it broadcast in some form. It, it kind of is surprising because obviously the thing that John Nathan Turner, when he took over from Graham Williams in like the beginning of the 1980s, kind of like said, the first thing I want to get rid of is the silly humour. And there's a lot of silly humour in Sharda because obviously yeah. it's written by Douglas Adams and. You know, he is known for that kind of humour. And so it's it's interesting that John Nathan Turner like, tried to say it as much as he did, given that he didn't like what the previous production um, team was doing with the show. Yeah, and it seems strange given his um, his kind of predilection for publicity and everything, because he, even by then, Douglas Adams must have been a huge name. You know, um, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy had been out for a few years. That yeah, um, you yeah. wanted to get away from that, you know. It, it seems like a connection that you'd maybe want to capitalise on. That um, that Douglas Adams had worked on Doctor Who, and that there was uh, this kind of basically spare material, you know. Yeah, and I think it was probably around that time that, obviously, like you say, Hitchhikers was was really taking off as a phenomenon, phenomenon, 
uh, if I can say that word properly. Um, and I think that's about the time that they announced that they were doing a TV version of it as well. So, mm. like you say, to kind of like, you know, ride the wave of that publicity of like, you know, this is by Douglas Adams and w- w- probably would have really, it's like a missed opportunity for John Nathan Turner, isn't it? That like he didn't kind of like sense that at all. Yeah. Because um, the thing you always wonder about Sharda is if it, if it had been completed, kind of would it be up there with, with the City of Death and, you know, the kind of classics from that era? Yeah. Um, I mean, re- I rewatched it again last night in preparation for this and kind of like thinking that there were times in it where I was thinking, this is dragging a little somewhat, kind of like, like a lot of six-parters used to do. Yeah. I you think know, it's stretched a bit thin, isn't it? It is. Time. Uh, the Philich Hinchcliffe approach to six-parters was always the best, as in oh, we'll take a two-part story and a four-part story and we'll link them together to create a six-part story. Yeah, the, the sort of think, seeds of doom kind of approach, isn't it, yeah. where they have the two parts um, at the North Pole or South Pole? I can't remember. Uh, it's the, yeah. the North Pole, and then yeah. it's suddenly after two episodes, then like the same kind of like plot threads go into you know when they come back to England, don't they? Yeah. Um, um, yeah, it's a good it's a good approach. Yeah, but I think they've kind of like lost that once Hinchcliffe and Robert Holmes like kind of left and Graham Williams took over. Um, the Invasion of Time has it slightly because obviously they have four episodes with the Vardens invading Gallifrey and then there's yeah. that twist that actually it's the Sontarans and for the final two episodes it's the Sontarans. Yeah. Which I always loved as a kid. But um, that was another story that was hit by strike action. Yeah, um, because you get that the hospital interior, isn't it, for the inside of the TARDIS? Yeah, its scenes were um, filmed in a disused lunatic asylum, which kind of seems quite apt for uh, the TARDIS scenes, really, doesn't it? Yeah. It's, uh, is it episode five of that one where they're just running through the hospital for, for most of the episode? Yeah, and they kind of like just walk past the same bin. It's yeah. just filmed over <laughs> they like they're getting deeper and deeper into the TARDIS. Yeah. It now and going, well, why does the TARDIS have brick walls? Yeah. <laughs> I love the bit where the Centauran falls over the deck chair. Oh, yeah, he trips up. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, I was kind of looking at it thinking, it, I mean, I, I really like season 17, but I think this would comfortably be my second favourite story in it um, after the City of Death, uh, had it uh, been completed. I do have a soft spot for Destiny of the Daleks, um, purely because I've just got very strong memories of that and very strong memories of the Davros coming back. And yeah, all right, there is a slightly jokey approach to it now because obviously you have Douglas Adams as script editor of the show. Um, so there are a few hitchhikers jokes that get you know, slid into it. But um, going back to what you said about whether it would be regarded as a classic, um, I think out of the three stories that he wrote for the show fully, I think it's probably... For me, City of Death's always going to be the top one. Yeah. And I really do enjoy Pirate Planet because, again, it has a proper, like, kind of like, um, almost Star Wars-y kind of feel. Yeah. Um, to it. 
uh, doing stuff that's way beyond Doctor Who's budget, but you know it does a good job of um, having a crack. Um, but I think Shada, if Shada, I think would be a lot better if it, it had been written as a four-episode story. Yeah, had it filmed and completed and gone out as a six-episode story, I think it would have obviously it has those saggy bits. You know, in episodes four and five, where not a lot actually happens, and there's a lot of wandering around spaceships and all the rest of it. Um, so, as as good as the bits that we've got are, and as good as like Douglas Adams' writing is, I don't think it can be regarded as like you know the lost classic that some fans kind of like hold it up to be. Yeah. It's it's difficult with 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 some missing bits, isn't it? Like even like the kind of the the big confrontation between the Doctor and Skagger at the end. Don't know how it, you know quite how that would have played out. Um, it's um, I, f- I feel like the, um, it's a shame the the bits of uh, Skagra stealing the TARDIS are missing because I think that would have been really cool seeing a, a kind of a, a bad guy at the controls. Um, yeah, you know, it felt quite kind of invasive, you know, because the TARDIS is always like kind of the safe haven and, and whatnot. Um, and I think if, if I cast my memory back, I think prior to probably that, you didn't really get a lot of uh, villains or monsters inside the TARDIS, did you? No. Besides, obviously, the Sontarans wandering around in the yeah. invasion of time, but they're just kind of like just chasing the doctor in it. Yeah. Um, like later on in the 80s, it seems like. Any person can get yeah. into the TARDIS and wander around and force the Doctor to pilot it somewhere. It happens a lot in the John Nathan Turner years. Yeah, it does, doesn't it? The Doctor's possessed by Sutek in the, the Pyramids of Mars and he has to pilot it. There's a mummy on board then, isn't there, I think? I might be misremembering that. Oh, is there? When they go to the Pyramid. I might be misremembering that. But it's quite creepy having the Doctor uh, possessed, you know, and... and Taken yeah. as well at that point. I was thinking about it um, earlier as well in the sense um, that uh, the way it's been animated, it's kind of for for fans like us, I guess, who are too young to have seen the 60s stories when they went out. It is just similar to the 60s stories where we don't have the, the complete story. Yeah. It's, um, you know, it does... Because it's the only story that is is only partially was only partially filmed, um, but kind of history has left us with partially completed stories anyway. So it, it kind of gives it more legitimacy now. I think that it's um, it's animated and it's kind of on your shelf alongside you know Power of the Daleks and um, the Invasion and all the different ones that have been been partially animated since then. Kind of yeah. for me it makes it feel more like a, a real story in a way. Yeah, and obviously it has that kind of like. Um, aura about it because it was the unfinished story you know so it has that kind of legend around it and now finally like seeing it in um, like a a completed version does like you say you can now you know slot it in between the horns of Naimon and the legend as a proper bona fide adventure yeah, because I mean, you've got more footage in it than um, like, like Power of the Daleks, for example, which was the last animation that came out. Um, you've got more actual kind of live footage of the Doctor and the companions and everything. It's uh, yeah, it's kind of in a weird place, isn't it? 
It is, it is. And but you know, it's interesting that obviously all, a lot of you know the surroundings of like why it wasn't completed and stuff is like that kind of stuff happened a lot to Doctor Who, but you know they always found a way around it. You know, um, but unfortunately, Sharda was the one that you know didn't like they didn't find a way around it and they didn't find a way to complete it. So I think because of that, it's legend kind of like, you know, grew in stature, you know, similar to what a lot of the, the missing stories from the sixties, because, you know, there's obviously people's memories of them. There's like the, uh, the telly snaps. So people can kind of like see what happened in the stories, but, and there's obviously the soundtracks that were recorded by fans and then remastered and, you know, so we've got the audio of those stories, but we just haven't got the pictures to go with them. So they're kind of like, there's a lot of like stories out there where, you know, they're highly regarded because, you know, they're not there anymore. Yeah. And Garda has always fallen into that category as well. I think there's so many great ideas in it as well. Um, the, uh, you know, I love the, um, I love Cronotus's TARDIS that it appears as a door in a wall. Yeah. It's just like nothing you've seen any in anybody else's TARDISes or anything, and it's so cool. And it's that kind of Doctor Who thing that's just a really simple effect to achieve, um, but just cool. I mean, you only get to see in the animation on here, but just a really ordinary kind of, you know, earth wooden door, um, but on the wall of a futuristic spaceship and stuff. It's just the kind of stuff that I think Doctor Who does really well. It's that just juxtaposition of the, you know, the kind of the mundane and the, the extraordinary. Yeah, um, that reminds me of a, a Douglas Adams quote. Uh, I think Tom Baker always used to like quote whenever he was asked about Sharda. Is that um, when they got the scripts and you know Tom Baker had said to Douglas Adams, "Invisible spaceship? Well, that's a bit lame, isn't it?" And Douglas Adams had apparently turned to Tom Baker and said, well, you know, anybody can come up with a spaceship, but it takes real imagination to come up with an invisible spaceship. Yeah. <laughs> I think that's a brilliant quote to just get around that problem. Yeah. We haven't got the budget to put a spaceship in a field in Cambridge, so we'll yeah. just say it's invisible. I feel like Doctor was so lucky to have Douglas Adams for that that brief period. Um, because yeah, it, and... I, I do kind of like think it is a shame that he passed away when he did because he passed away literally just a couple of years before the show came back into production and you would like to think that obviously I know he always kind of like was very late with deadlines and yeah. stuff from writer's block but you kind of get the feeling that had he still lived and still been with us that you know that Russell T Davis and Stephen Moffat would have gone Douglas do you want to come back and, and, and do us a, a couple of episodes? Or have you got any story ideas? Do you want to, like, you know, write yeah. a, an episode for David Tennant or Matt Smith? I think he would have been there in a shot. Definitely, yeah. Um, because it, it seems like he's obviously a huge influence on both of those writers as well, um, especially the, the End of the World, the uh, Russell T. Davis episode, felt very influenced by Douglas Adams to me. Yeah. And I think I remember at the time, um, it, Russell T. Davis said in some interview or other that when he was kind of like pitching the show to like give me the show to bring it back, bring it up, give me the show, 
And he was trying to, I think, convince uh, Julie Gardner and Lorraine Hegesy, who were in charge of the BBC drama department at the time. And I think he kind of like showed them City of Death as an example of this is what the show can be. It can be fun. It can be scary. It can be adventurous. It can be thrilling. It's perfect Saturday night entertainment. And, you know, that is the perfect story to kind of like hand to somebody and say look at what this show can do because you know everything is in there there's time travel there's monsters there's you know there's brilliant location footage there's wonderful production values it all comes together i think in those four episodes yeah it is fast paced it's just incredibly witty isn't it and um and, and again just full of genius ideas yeah the, the whole setup with the uh, the mona lisa's um, the uh, uh, Scaroth being splintered through time. He's just, Doug Sam just seems like he's just kind of uh, bursting with ideas the whole time, doesn't he? It is. And, and going back to the obviously Sharda got affected by strike action, it's ironic that City of Death is still the highest rated um, viewing figures for Doctor Who with 16 million because at the time ITV was completely off the air because of another technician strike. And yeah, for like two weeks or something, wasn't it? It was a good... Longer than that, I've yeah. actually looked into it. And ITV went off air in August, just as Doctor Who came back for season 17 at the beginning of September. Yeah. And it didn't go <laughs> begin broadcasting again until October. Wow. But for two and a half months, <laughs> ITV had nothing but a blue screen that just said, we're sorry, but we're not able to broadcast yeah. due to a technician strike. And that would seem like such a huge, huge improvement now, wouldn't it? Oh, God, to, yeah. Uh, <laughs> stuff that ITV puts to the, there, yeah, yeah, to the current output, yeah. It would be bliss, wouldn't it? <laughs> um, so what do you think of the, the animation on this? Um, I liked it. Um, I, again, you, you're never going to get kind of like Disney quality animation because you know they're working on a very, very tight budget. Yeah. But was it was adequate it, it did its job it gave you a good idea of obviously what you know would have been filmed had um you know they actually got around to completing it some of the things that i did like about it is that they've made the decision to um instead of animating the model shots they've actually filmed the model shots yeah and i loved that that they actually got mike tucker and his model unit to um, do authentically filmed models of um, Think Tank and, um, you know, the spaceships and the TARDIS, yeah. you know, and then they filmed a bit of second unit stuff of K-9 fighting the Krags. Yeah. And I thought that was a little wonderful touch to put in there because you kind of like it almost as if you're seeing even more unused footage, even though that's been done especially for this version. It's, it's, it's brilliant, isn't it? Um, there's a really good article, which, again, I'll put a, a link in the show note to um, about the model unit and the stuff that they did. Um, and it goes into a lot of detail about how they achieved things. Um, but what was lovely is they, they only used the techniques and the materials that would have been available in 1979. Yeah, yeah. Um, and they recreated the original models. Um, I think they said that um, the think tank was... Um, a lot of the components were from a, 1990, a space 1999 model um, and a Gerda bridge. Uh, so they found those original models and that gave them an idea of the scale and the size uh, and, and kind of recreated all that. 
Oh right, I didn't know that. Yeah, it's um, it's, it's a really nice article. I'll, um, I'll I'll find it again and put a link in. Um, and the other thing that they they put in there, they were going to film the think tank blowing up, um, but they found the original footage had been done of that, so they used the original, and they used the budget to create the um, the hangar bay for the think tank. Oh so yeah, that was yeah. when they got the shot of the the spaceship materializing in there after the doctors. Um, you know, kind of uh, tinkered about with it to to improve its performance. Yeah. Um, so you got all those shots of of the ship um, kind of arriving and leaving and stuff. Um, but yeah, just the amount of care and and love that's gone into it. Um, and even there's photos of them and they're wearing sort of period um, t-shirts and things like that as well. <laughs> period hairstyles. Yeah. And <laughs> uh, the thing also another. That needs to be mentioned as well. Is, is uh, Mark Hare's wonderful um, soundtrack? Yeah, uh, music for for this version. It does a, a brilliant job of like um, being a lovely tribute and homage to Dudley Simpson. I thought it really captured the period of that era of the show brilliantly. absolutely wonderful isn't it yeah i love the you can there's elements of, of city of death in it um which obviously there would have been from the same season um yeah. but what's really nice about that is it's the because you really, well, really associate city of death with the 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 theme that they have when they're running around paris to show off the landmarks and everything like that and yeah that, that, that piano melody that they have yeah. yeah and you get elements of it as they run around cambridge as well um, which is a lovely touch. Yeah, because those those shots are great. I love when you see old Doctor Who and you see all the old cars um, and stuff like that as well. And it's because it's all shot on film as well, so it looks great. Mm. Um, so yeah, those those scenes where he's tearing through Cambridge on the bike and all that kind of stuff, it's great. And the music is, like you say, is is really evocative and and obviously a million times better than the Kef McCulloch. Uh, Music that we got on the uh, 1992 VHS. Oh God, yeah. yeah. <laughs> that's that's yeah. Let's not mention that. <laughs> um, another thing I noticed, uh, Marcel was like, rewatching it last night, is that um, in the animation uh, they've put a lot of little in jokes in there. Yes, uh, I only noticed that the second time I watched it as well. There's yeah, some really nice stuff. Did you? Um, so there's the the shops. Did you notice those ones? Yeah, there's um, there's the named after. Yeah, there's there's the, there's the there's a sweet shop called the Candyman. Yeah, that's with a right. With and there's the Celestial Toy Room, um, which has um, a lot of toys in the window, which uh, which will look familiar uh, if you kind of pause and have a look there. as well. Yeah, and when Chris Parkinson's takes the the book. Um, Back. He's got a couple of other books as well, which you can um, you briefly see when he puts them down on the table. Yeah, I noticed that he added the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy there. Yeah, and Zaphod, uh, is it Zaphod My Story? 
Yeah, that's right. And hyperspace bypass planning law. <laughs> <laughs> Which is great. Uh, there's also a lot of like little in-jokes in the uh, when the Doctor finally gets to materialise in the TARDIS store cupboard. Yeah. There's Once some... he's gone through the vortex from... Um, Chronotis, um like his TARDIS into his own TARDIS. I thought there was a lot of like little um, things in that storeroom that were a nice touches. Yeah, what I liked about that they were they were from relatively recent stories as well. Which if they'd filmed it, they would have been maybe the props that were most readily to hand. Yeah, I mean I, I, the ones that I spotted were the Polyphase Abatron. Yeah, and Mavellan gun. Yeah. A laser sun probe from the robots of death. There was a couple of metabelis crystals. Uh, yeah. like, <laughs> there was the trilogic game from the Celestial Toymaker. Uh, a Cyberman head on the top shelf. Yeah. Um, the Kronos crystal and the time sensor from the time monster. And the Arato communicator was right behind the shelving as well. The big like shield thing from the creature of the pit. Yeah. Just, There's uh, probably a couple of other things in there that you, you know, your podcast listeners have probably like seen, seen that you know we've missed. But I just thought nice little touches there. That big yeah, point. the beauty of those is, uh, like, say, I only picked it up on the second viewing as well, so it's um, it kind of bears multiple viewings because you're going to spot little things every time. Um, I mean, this is quite a big thing. I should have spotted on the first time is when um, again when when Chris takes the book. The clock in the background when he he's moving forwards and backwards as he flicks through the pages. Um, he's kind of a wall clock on the wall behind him. Yeah, doesn't it go backwards and forwards? Yeah, I I never spotted that the first time, but again the second time I did, um, which again just a really really nice touch. See, uh, to... I, I I was watching it last night and I thought I'm sure that's right, but then what I was trying to look more for the books and then I kind of like, no the clocks. The clock's just going right in the right thing, but obviously, like you say, it's it's a nice little touch that the clock goes backwards and forwards as he turns the pages because that's the effect it's having. Yeah, and that's another brilliant idea that that is how the um, the TARDIS is compiled to Sharda, that you turn the pages of the book. Just, yeah. Uh, again, a brilliant, simple, clever idea that's that's kind of easily achievable for the uh, for the production team as well. I really like that. And then the other the other great thing on the disc is Toby Haydock's um, commentaries on there, um, if you've had a chance to listen to those. No, I haven't had a chance to do those yet. Because um, I, I saw on Twitter he was talking about it, and there was basically there was no budget to do them, there was no plan to do them. Um, yeah. It's just kind of something he took upon himself, just, uh, just as a little extra for the fans. Yeah, so he speaks to um, the guy that plays Chris Parsons, whose name I've, I've temporarily forgotten. Oh, Daniel Hill. Daniel Hill. Um, he speaks to Christopher Neem, who plays oh. Skagra. Yeah. Um, and then uh, some of the animators that have done the the, uh, the the animated parts of the DVD. Yeah. Um, but they because he kind of just did them on the fly. Um, they don't actually relate to what's on the what's going on, on the screen. So you can just kind of kind of put it on the background and have a listen. Um, uh, which, yeah, I was listening to them while we took our Christmas tree down and, and the decorations. Um, so it makes it a lot like Toby Haydock's Who's Who's Round, um, which is a podcast I absolutely love anyway. Yeah, it is a good podcast. Yeah, it's yeah, it's, it's pretty essential listening, really, isn't it for um, for especially kind of classic Doctor Who fans. Yeah, um, and he's so good at it as well. The kind of like teasing little anecdotes out of them and, and the background. 
Um, so that's another kind of really lovely thing that's on the DVD. So have you read um, Gareth Roberts' novelization of Sharda? I haven't, and uh, I do have it in hardback. It was bought for me, I think, as a birthday or a Christmas present, but it's one of those things that sat on the shelf and I have never got round to um, reading yet. And it's a shame because obviously I've got uh, other like Douglas Adams books. I've got the all the Hitchhikers. I've got the Dirk Gentleys. Um, and obviously because this is Gareth Roberts doing his kind of like take on Douglas Adams, it's one of the things that I just never got round to to reading. Um, have you Have you read it? Yeah, I think it's absolutely superb. Um, it's really good. I definitely recommend it to anybody. Um, have you read subsequent ones by James Goss? Yeah, um, I've read The Pirate Planet and The City of Death, um, which I love, and I'm about halfway through Doctor Who and the Cricket Men. Um, which is just out now, isn't it? Yeah, which again, I'm really, really enjoying. Um, and that's kind of new to me as well. Um, I know some of the elements have been used in other Douglas Adams stories, um, but the, the majority of it I've, I've kind of never come across, so um, that's I'm, I'm really enjoying that one as well. Yeah, because I'm aware that he used large proportions of that kind of thing, which was, a, I didn't know this, but was originally developed as a Doctor Who feature film script. Yeah, he, he was asked to kind of come up with um, with a bit of a concept and uh, and a proposal for it, wasn't he? Yeah, and but he used a, lot, a few elements of it for the third Hitchhiker's book, the Life, the Universe and Everything, didn't he? Yeah, which I haven't read for years and years. Because um, I've never read... Dirk Gently's Holistic Detective Agency, either, which apparently a lot of Sharda goes into. Yeah. Is that something that you've you've read recently or you're aware of? I read it recently. I, I read it when it came out. I've got a battered paperback uh, copy somewhere <laughs> lying around. Um, so, again, I think that's something that I might um, see if I can find and, and dig out and then just see what the similarities are. But, yeah, yeah I mean, he was never want to throw away a good idea and obviously if he, he didn't use them for Doctor Who then you know as every good writer should do you could you know, use never throw away a good idea and use them like later on definitely yeah because I've seen the um, there's two adaptations of Dirk Gently there was the the BBC one with Stephen Mangan yeah um, a few I watched years that ago, one um, which I really liked and then there's the the Netflix one more recently that's got um uh, Frodo in it, uh, Elijah Wood. Elijah Wood, yeah, yeah. Um, which again, it's good, um, but I kind of preferred the BBC one with Stephen Mangan. Yeah, um, I've, I haven't watched the the American version because, from what I've read, it, it's kind of like basically just takes the name and a little bit of the concept and does its own thing. Yeah, and people say that if you're a fan of either the BBC version or the original books it's very far removed from that. So that's one of the reasons why I've not quite visited that um, new version yet, which I believe, apparently, I think um, has just been cancelled after its second series. I don't think... I think they've announced that they're not doing a third one. Ah, right, I hadn't heard that, because I know the second series has only very recently been released on Netflix. I haven't got around to watching it yet. Um, yeah, they've kind of, like, uh, decided to pull the plug on it. Um, yeah. So... Um, I'm not sure whether or not um, it'll get overturned if there's a big campaign or fans like speak out about it. But yeah. from what I've read recently, it's uh, yeah they've just decided to stop after the second series. Because it's quite unusual for Netflix to cancel something, isn't it? It, it feels like they, they um, more so than 
kind of you get, especially in American stuff, they seem to give stuff a chance to to grow and develop and improve, don't they? Yeah, they do. Uh, and obviously, you know, unless, you know, the, the people who make the show only ever planned for two series, but, um, you know, what showrunner kind of like does that these days? They yeah. normally have a five-year plan at least, don't they? Yeah, it's, uh, ah, right. And when stuff like that happens, it kind of puts me off watching the second series as well because I don't want to kind of get to the end of it and find there's loads of unresolved plot threads or a cliffhanger. <laughs> yeah, it's on a big cliffhanger. It'll like never that. get resolved, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I'll have to think twice before watching that now. <laughs> so, one of the things I think I mentioned at the beginning, um, I said that obviously, you know, some fans moan about everything these days. And I know a lot of fans have kind of like been against the decision to have this as a feature-length version rather than episodes. What was your take on that when you were watching it? Yeah, I, I was quite surprised because I didn't know until I watched it that it was going to be like that. I think I'd planned to kind of watch the first one or two episodes uh, and then I've been watching it for ages and realised that there weren't any. Um, yeah. Yeah, because it's quite long to watch in one sitting, isn't it? Yeah, it is, yeah. Um and there are, you can tell where the cliffhangers were, I think, as well, because there's um, there's those moments where the actors kind of freeze <laughs> uh, when they're in danger. Um, and then because there's no break in episodes, they just sort of freeze for a moment and then carry on. Um, so, yeah, there's a couple of bits that are quite weird like that. Yeah, um, I think the thing that, the one that stands out the most, I think, is the where episode two is supposed to end, which is the end of the bicycle chase, isn't it? Where yeah. Beer's closing in on the doctor as he's stuck under that fence. And then obviously Romana comes and the TARDIS scares the sphere off. And uh, it kind of like, just like you say, hovers over his face. Yeah. <laughs> long, and you're expecting the sting of the music to come in. And then the end titles and it never arrives. Yeah, there's another, I can't, I'm not sure if it's sort of episode four or five where they're being menaced by the, the crags. Oh yeah, it's yeah. a similar sort of thing. They kind of cower for a second and then realise they can just run away. Yeah, <laughs> um, I've forgotten how. Um, I mean, not that you see any blood or anything, but quite brutal when the the crag massacres all those scientists, isn't it? Yeah, it is actually, and obviously that's kind of like a a rare scene that was filmed with them, wasn't it? Yeah, it, it really struck me watching it this time because um, he just kind of he's got that kind of laser thing. Um, but just seems like he's really just kind of beating them to death with it. Yeah, something really struck at that time. It was a sort of an odd, an odd scene of brutality and amongst all, all the rest of it. And it is a bit strange that kind of like the doctor kind of like just like leaves them in the corner and like yeah. runs off with a nine and doesn't really attempt to kind of like rescue them at all. Yeah, because it's been quite quite humorous up to that point. It, it, it's quite something quite Monty Python, isn't there about the. Um, about the makeup and everything on them, the way they're all kind of aged and they've got the beards and the long nails. Yeah, they do look like a bit like uh, Michael Palin, don't yeah. they? <laughs> so, yeah. The beginning bit of Monty Python. I absolutely love the bit where um, Tom Baker's being introduced to them, the, the doctor's being introduced to them all uh, when they've plugged Chris Parsons in so that one of them can speak. Um, and he, he goes down the line of all these kind of withered old scientists and... Um, he first of all he tries to shake one of the hands and then he pats one on the head and then yeah. he just kind of taps the cheek of one of them. Yeah, it's like, oh, bless you. <laughs> yeah. It's great. I think part of the problem with the animation is 
you don't get those moments from Tom Baker. No, no. Um, where where you know he'd been he'd be doing something. Um, particularly the the two bits that, that stuck out, and they are they're still quite funny on the animation. Is where um, Skagra's outside Cronotus's TARDIS, demanding that the Doctor comes out, not knowing that he's done that kind of vortex uh, walk over to his yeah. own TARDIS. So he walks out of his own TARDIS and walks up behind him, um, which is still really funny on the animation. Um, yeah get the feeling that like they probably would have done something in rehearsals with that to kind of like like Tom Baker in, in at that point of the show was quite um, by his own admission quite overbearing wasn't he and gave Graham Williams a bit of a, a hard time yeah was very um, kind of like well I'm coming up with this idea and we're, we're doing this and it was um, I know it came to a, a big bust up at the end of the previous season because um, Tom Baker actually wrote a letter of resignation which was refused by the head of drama and he instructed right. Graham Williams to like essentially like give Tom Baker whatever he wanted right I never but, heard that story uh... no yeah um, I think it was Graham McDonald who was head of drama at the time um, basically refused um Tom Baker's resignation because Tom Baker and Graham Williams had had another great big bus stop. Yeah. Tom said, well, no, you know, sod this, I'm leaving the show. So the Armageddon factor nearly um, ended up being the fourth Doctor's last story. That wouldn't have been a great one to go out on, would it? It wouldn't have been, no, but such was obviously Tom Baker's star power at the BBC at the time. Um, You know, that the head of drama said, backed the star of the show rather than yeah. the producer, which is a very rare occurrence. Yeah. No way you can replace the lead at a drop of a hat. Yeah, that's it. And he, he kind of catapulted it to such success as well, hadn't he, at that point? Yeah, he had, uh, yeah. Um, but yeah, like you say, that um, he, he would have come up with something for that scene, definitely. It's the kind of scene that you get the impression Tom Baker loved. Um, yeah, kind of creeping up behind the main villain while he's um, ranting and stuff. Um, and then there's a similar kind of thing where him and Parsons arrive behind Romana and he taps her on the shoulder. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah, because she doesn't know he's arrived, which again would have been would have been great to see see the live version with the, with those two actors. Uh, and again, there's that little bit in the script which you presume is probably. Um... Tom Baker more than Douglas Adams, where throughout the story, after like just referring to him at once as Chris Parsons as Bristol, yeah. For the rest of the story, he calls him Bristol, and I get the feeling that's probably more a Tom Baker thing than a Douglas Adams thing. I think this is something he, he talks. Um, the Daniel Hill talks about on the commentary with um, Toby Haydock um, mm-hmm. that he'd said that uh, that Tom Baker had said, "I'm going. This is what I'm going to call you." <laughs> um, <laughs> and I think he says something like, "Oh, Douglas won't mind," or something like that as well. <laughs> well, he was he was renowned for rewriting scripts, wasn't he? And, yeah, and, like they doing his own thing by that time. And I think I think Tom Baker um, delivering Douglas Adams' dialogue is 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 kind of just alchemy, isn't it? It's it's brilliant. Much as I love Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, I think Tom Baker delivers that dialogue. Better than anybody, like Douglas oh, Adams style. Yeah. Um, it's it's yeah, I think it's a kind of a marriage made in heaven, isn't it? 
it is. I mean, kind of like a lot of fan perception like goes through changes over the years, but there's always been that perception that oh, Doctor Who got too silly in the Graham Williams era, and especially season seventeen was the worst the show ever got. And you know, when you actually watch season seventeen, it's it's not that silly. Yeah, there's the odd pratfall, there's the odd joke in there, but that's something that's Doctor Who's always done uh, before, and it's it's done since as well. Um, you know, so it to say that oh well, Douglas Adams ruined Doctor Who, and then you know um, John Nathan Turner had to like wipe the slate clean and bring the seriousness back to it. It's like a kind of like a big fan myth. Um, yeah. When you rewatch that, there's not a lot of silliness in season seventeen. Probably the worst bit is probably Graham Crowden overacting wildly yeah. in the time off. But that's probably more to do with the director not being able to control the actor yeah. than the writing. Yeah. No. Absolutely. This kind of like strange mix on the opening titles, which is more a kind of like classic sixties theme of the show rather than the, the actual Tom Baker theme, which I thought was a bit of a strange decision, but... Oh, I never um, noticed that. Did you... Yeah, it's it's more um, the 60s version that they put on for the 5.1 surround sound. But apparently if you select the mono track, it does do the default Tom Baker version. I think that must be one I listen to because I don't have surround sound. Ah, right, okay. Um, I like the Toby Haydock's, um he does the kind of continuity announcement as well. Yes, that was a lovely touch at the beginning. Yeah, the way it's slightly later than uh, <laughs> than expected. Yeah, um, yeah, nice kind of double meaning with that, isn't it? That we've waited uh, 30 odd years for, <laughs> for this story. Uh, but it's complete at last. Yeah, and, um, and, yeah, and just a, a brilliant addition to, to the collection, I think. It's... Uh, yeah, it's definitely one I'm going to keep coming back to. Indeed, yeah, and like I say, you know, um, you know, let's hope Tom Baker is with us for, you know, a fair few years yet. Um, but that final scene with him is just absolutely magical. Yeah. And you know, he is, and he always will be my doctor. And it was just brilliant to see him um, on screen again as the like little bookend to this story. Yeah, it's fantastic, and I love the behind-the-scenes bits and pieces with that as well, where you get him, um, kind of, uh, he's on the TARDIS set with his script rehearsing. Yeah, as someone really reverentially puts the scarf around him and gets it just right. It's it's <laughs> lovely to see. Yeah. Well, thank you very much for for joining me today, Jason. It's been an absolute pleasure discussing Shard with you. I'm uh, I'm pleased that you've really enjoyed it as well. It's been uh, brilliant to be asked back, and I've really enjoyed uh, revisiting uh, the long lost Sharda and finally seeing it complete. That's great. Um, if you, thanks for listening at home. Join me next week. Uh, Denise Sutton will be back, and we'll be starting a Chris Chibnall retrospective, looking back at his Doctor Who episodes up to this point prior to him taking over in season 11. Um, and Jason, you've kindly agreed to come back in a few weeks and discuss dinosaurs on a spaceship. Yes, I have. Yeah, I'll look forward to that. That's brilliant. I'll, I'll speak to you then. Um, and thanks for listening. Goodbye. <laughs>